Let's go. This is Power Pivot with Leela Sinha. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Power Pivot, the podcast where we talk about ethics, leadership, power, and community. Power can corrupt, but it doesn't have to be that way. Today's show may contain references to erotic and sexual subjects, so make your decision about where and how to listen appropriately. Our guest today is Nobilis Reed. Nobilis Reed is the creator, editor, and host of the audio anthology podcast, Nobilis Erotica, which presents erotic speculative fiction short stories every month. He is the author of Monster Whisperer, which was named one of the best sex books of 2017 by Violet Blue, and its upcoming sequel, Monster Whisperer Second Class. You can find his podcast on any podcast directory or at its website at nobilislibson.com. So nobilis.libson.com. You can find the nonsense that crosses his mind on Twitter and his deep thoughts on Medium, both as at nobilis, that's N-O-B-I-L-I-S. Nobilis, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to have interesting people. And you are very definitely an interesting people. We've known each other on Facebook for probably a few years now, but I don't think we've ever had uh, a chance not, to talk before. No, yeah, not, not to my knowledge. My memory no. isn't as reliable as it used to be. Yeah, well, there's that. So... So this is a show about power, and I, I uh-huh. spent a little too much time in academia. So let's begin by defining our terms. When I say power, what does that mean to you? Okay. <clears throat> I There's a bunch of different ways to come at it, right? Because there's like a very specific scientific mathematical definition of power in terms of, um, you know, making things happen in the sense of moving things around. Mm -hmm. And you measure it by how much stuff has moved around. You know power in science by what it does. Um, And I think, but I think in interpersonal terms, it's often um, in terms of potential, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the ability to change the world around you, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, I, I like to think of it in terms of like um, uh, uh, the connection to human rights. So, like one of the human rights recognized by the United Nations is the right of movement, the right to decide you don't like where you are and to pick up and go somewhere else. Then I like to use that one because it's not one that's guaranteed by. The U.S. Constitution. I love. I love the dichotomy there, uh, because Americans tend to think of the rights that are in the Constitution as the only ones that exist. Um, so uh, you can have the right to move, and not have the ability to move. Right. right? The means. So somebody who's, you know, because if you're talking about like moving your place of residence, that can be a very expensive thing for someone who's in poverty, um, mm-hmm. and it can be be a very difficult thing for someone who's disabled. Um, and requires a lot of excess, a lot more effort than someone who's in a better situation. So um, uh, 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 it, it, it's a combination of having the freedom to do something and having the resources to do it. That's the that's the the combination there for what kind of power means to me. And oftentimes, um, it's. Uh, 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 it also has to do with the effect that that has on other people. So, 
you know, again, going back to that freedom of movement thing, uh, if, you know, mom decides, okay, we're moving to Connecticut, the other people in the household, children, disabled, elders, what have you, might not have any say in that decision. Right. And if, and if mom says it's happening, it's happening. Well, then she's the one with the power in that relationship, to, the power to choose where they're going to live. Um, so that, uh, to me, it, it, you know, the, in the broadest possible sense, it's the ability to make changes in the world, especially those that affect other people. So it's freedom or rights plus capacity. And it's the ability right. to change and it's the ability to change your own world and the world of other people. Boiled down to its smallest possible expression, the ability to make changes in the world. Okay. What are the best things about having power? Having power is a comfortable situation, right? Um, it, it means that, you know, the more you have, the more, up to a point at least, I guess, um, the more confident you can be that whatever happens, you'll be able to handle it. And uh, it kind of broadens your horizon. If you're struggling with really basic things, uh, it's really difficult to think much beyond the next hour or the next day. But as those become less of an everyday concern, you can start thinking about next month, next year, 20 years, your kids, the planet as a whole, etc. Um, so you're talking uh, basically about Maslow's hierarchy. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, the Maslow's hierarchy has a lot to do with it. Um, though I think that, that one of the problems that I have with Maslow's hierarchy is that um, it tends to downplay uh, empathy and care about other people um, because his highest value there is I think personal actualization. I'm not sure exactly mm -hmm. uh, if I don't if I have it right, but there's nothing there in Maslow's hierarchy that says, "Okay, I'm solid. I want to make the people around me solid." And I think that there's, you know, there's a level at which people can kind of branch out and want to improve more than just their own situation. They want to improve their community. Now, uh, this is at odds with the idea that um, as people become more powerful, they, they, they tend to lose empathy. Um, this right. is something that's been uh, studied a great deal in, in psychology lately. Um, but at the same time, uh, I think there's kind of a middle ground where people are thinking about their community and they are thinking about the world that they live in um, and they wanted the world at large to be a better place. Um, and there might be a certain amount of self-interest there because, you know, if you, if you have, if you have empathy, then seeing pain in other people degrades your own personal uh, experience. So maybe that, I mean, everything ultimately boils down to self-interest, but um, it bothers me that Maslow's, Maslow's hierarchy doesn't really mention it at all. Explicitly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. self-actualization involves engagement with sort of the the well-being of the whole world, as we see in a lot of religious spaces, right? The idea that when you when you are elevated, then you're of course you understand that you're one with everything, you're connected to everything that you want to be um, acting in. You know, if you have a, a theology that includes a god, you want to act in a godlike manner, 
right? You want to achieve that, that ability to have um, agape love mm-hmm. for every being yeah. you meet. You know, I think, I think that self-actualization is this really kind of mushy category. Uh, so it's possible. It, it, I feel like it's in there, but you're right. It's not explicitly in there. And I'm looking at a, um, a reference right now. It looks like, you know, his hierarchy is from 1943. Yeah, so yeah, that's a yeah. really I, interesting moment in history to be creating mm-hmm. a philosophy about how humans make decisions for themselves. Um, you know, and I, I kind of, for me, I'm putting it up against um, Henry Nelson Lyman's, um, uh, what's that book? The the source of human good. The let me look it up. Um, but it's but it's there's there was a lot of philosophizing in the in era sort of right in the middle of world war ii there where people are trying to figure out like how do people make these moral decisions and how do people decide when their self-interest needs to cede to something bigger yeah i yeah it's exactly (laughs) yeah it's called this it's women's the source of human good i it's a book that i read in uh in seminary and it's again it's it's for Wyman, it's Christian scholarship. It doesn't have to be set in Christianity, but um, but you know, people are really obviously for clear reasons wrestling with human value systems and and how they change depending on how much resource we have. So I think your point earlier that that you know power is not just the freedom to do something, but also the capacity to execute on whatever you want to execute. Um, I think that's really important to think about, you know, I mean, freedom is, is in, in some ways it's an aspect of power. You know, various philosophers have, have talked about, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of the freedoms arising from rights, right? Uh People have these rights. You have a right to do these things. And that's, you know, kind of, I mean, if you look at like the roots of it, that's a kind of a moral thing. Mm-hmm. That is, that is, you shouldn't stop people from doing this, this thing, mm-hmm. whether it's moving around or saying what is on their mind or, or, or things like that. Um, and especially, you know, with regard to constitutions and things, what governments should, should, should not, you know, interfere with. And I think that one of the things that we lose sight of is that there's a difference between nobody's stopping you. And having the resources to go and do it on top of that. Like one of the things that I am often um, looking at when I'm writing is uh, uh, the way that power is uh, negotiated and given and taken and uh, 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 traded and, uh, and, and moves around in personal relationships. Um, mm-hmm. Why don't you? Why don't we pause here for just a second and tell people a little bit about what you write in case they aren't already familiar okay. with you? Uh, I write erotica. I write with a science fiction fantasy setting. Um, uh, uh, my most recent book uh, is uh, Monster Whisperer, which is about a um, a woman who 
gives advice to people who have tentacle monsters on how to best uh, interact with them if they're dissatisfied with their relationship with their tentacle monster. Um, it is part of a kind of a movement, a very small niche uh, 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 idea in the erotica world called consentical, where uh, tentacle monsters and humans have sexual relationships uh, based on mutual consent rather than uh, rather than uh, not. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's, you know, so that kind you know, consent is a very, uh, important aspect of the stuff that I write. Um, and whether it's in that, what's in that context or other stories that I'm writing or the ones that I'm publishing in my podcast. Um, so, um, when it comes to when it comes to a uh, uh, you know a sexual relationship, um, power can really complicate consent. You know, uh, if someone if one member of a relationship has a great deal of power over the other, you know how 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 does consent work in that situation? And I think that's true. And I think that's true even outside of sexual interactions. I think power complicates consent. Period. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, um, uh, it, it's you know, there's there's no reason to limit it that way. It's just that that's how it that's how it uh, interacts with what I write. Sure. You were talking about um, how power appears. You know how power affects your writing, or how power is a part of your writing. Okay. And you were talking about power and consent and how they impact each other. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Um, well, for example, um, there's a um, a story uh, written by a colleague of mine, A. H. Lee, where uh, you have a relationship between a uh, a sorcerer and a demon that the sorcerer has summoned and bound. So, uh, or had in the past and has since released, and now the the two are supposedly in a in a uh, you know an equal partnership rather than in a master slave relationship. Um, and at one point, the uh, the demon's off on his own doing some stuff, and uh, he uh, you know encounters a fairy lord, fairy a fairy lady actually, a very powerful fairy, and invites her back to their back to the home. With the two of the, the, the sorcerer and the demon share, and the the sorcerer is like, you invited a fairy in. What's wrong with you? Uh, and really gets upset that the demon has done this. And the demon is like, look, I made a decision that I thought you guys could, you know, this would be an opportunity to have a diplomatic relationship between the two of you because uh, this was an, you know, I saw an opportunity here and I wanted to explore it and. Um, the uh, the sorcerer needs to uh, needed to recognize that in order to be in an equal partnership, that the that the demon had to be able to uh, uh, um, uh, make decisions on his own. And uh, and if that turned out to be a mistake, that then 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 they would deal with that together. But uh, if everything has to be checked in with the sorcerer first, then it's not really an equal partnership. Um, and I found that that was a great way to kind of establish the, the, the equality of the relationship that in the past had not been, um, 
once once the sorcerer kind of realized where he had stepped over the line. Do you think it's actually possible to do that? I think it, it, I think it is, and I well, okay. Power in a relationship is is very complicated because you have all these different freedoms and powers that you have. And one person might have more power in one situation, another, another, and you know, and another, and it, and it flows, and it moves, and it's given, and it's and uh, and traded, and um, uh, uh, it is possible for a relationship to uh, become more equal than it has been. But to say you can say that having having an equal partnership is your ideal. Right, but like everything else in the human world, you know, you you never quite meet your ideal. It's not never things ever. Nothing's ever perfect. But as long as you're working toward that, then then that is ultimately the measure of of uh, you know whether that's healthy or not. Hmm. Because uh, you know um, uh, the. Uh, uh, like it used to be in the kind of traditional marriage relationship, and I and I'm going back to like the 19th century, um, that the husband would have decision-making power over a certain you know parts of life, and the wife would have just make power over other things like you know. Who's, uh, you know, uh, how the household would be run, the the idea that, you know, uh, uh, things would be set up any other way was not open to anyone. But uh, there were particular spheres that were somebody's responsibility, and those were supposedly div- you know divided up. Um, you know, the, that was not an equitable division, but nevertheless, there were certain areas where uh, a wife's Power was supposed to be respected in 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 matters relating to, for example, how children are raised. Um, and I'm not saying that that's a particularly good ideal, but that is, you know, you you, you can have situations where um, I give all the power over, you know, I give the power over this situation to you. You give the power of that situation to me, and that is, it's not equal. But it can be equitable. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I agree that it's not equal. I, I don't think you have to be doing the same things in order for something to be equal. Um. But I mean, at, 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 then at that point, I think we're just quibbling over semantics about what what equal means. Um. Uh, but there's a difference between everyone is the same and things are divided up fairly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think there are a lot of I think there are a lot of different ways to divide things, responsibilities, power, whatever, up. <clears throat> and you know, I again like we're in the in that sort of weedy part of philosophy where it's like, well, what's fair? So should we be striving for? equal power for everybody in a relationship in any kind of relationship and in, in a personal relationship and a professional one, like is equality and power is, is that our ideal? Is that what we want? 
No, in fact, I you know I, th- I think that that there are there are times when, I mean, let's you know go into um, uh, 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 BDSM relationships, um, the you know in a situation where someone has said you know in this space in a sexual space between you and I, uh, I am going to give you the power and. What I get out of giving you that power is that I can kind of let go of my, there's a comfort in not having the power when you give it to someone you trust. And not having the responsibility. And not having the responsibility, not having to make decisions, not having to worry about what's going to happen next. Just letting it happen, knowing that if things go badly, you can stop it. You retain that power, you know, the power of the safe word. Um, but give everything else over, you know, allows a, a, a certain amount of clarity, a certain amount of, uh, of freedom from worries and kind of getting stuck in your head and just letting go. And that is really attractive for people. So that, you know, so, you know, so no, I don't think that power needs to be equal at all times, but, um, I think what is what is necessary is being aware of when uh, uh, when power is being when and how tr- power is being traded and 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 passed from one person to another and and that kind of thing. You know, that's how where do you know really when you get, have power. How do I know when I have power? Um, sometimes you know, sometimes you don't. Right? Sometimes you don't realize that you're the one with the power in the situation until you've kind of sat back and thought about it. And oftentimes the decisions we make can feel like there's only one right answer when maybe there isn't. And so we can have, we can have power and kind of be ignorant of it if we don't, if we don't know what our options are. Um, but so how do you become more aware? I think taking time for introspection, I think is one way to do that and to just kind of clear, clear the mind and, uh, not, and, be out of the analytical uh, mind can also can help. Um, talking to having someone you can trust to talk about situations can be very helpful. Um, I, it's um, I found that the best way for my own part to navigate that kind of thing is really having having someone to trust to talk to about it. That's really. Uh, uh, and even if they're not offering any advice, um, just to be able to kind of put their thoughts into words that are intended for someone else to hear and understand can often kind of order one's thoughts and, and open up awareness to things just because you're processing these things in another part of your brain. Uh, mm-hmm. I find that that's when I get stuck, whether it's um, on some thorny interpersonal issue or something I'm writing and I can't figure out what to, where to go with it next or whatever. Um, just sitting down and talking to someone about it is usually the best way to unlock for me to unlock what's, what's what I'm stuck with. So how do you choose who you do that with? Well, that's not, that's not easy, right? Because it needs to be someone you can trust. Um, but it also needs to be someone who's not necessarily directly involved with it. Um, especially if it's an interpersonal issue, 
um, I'm lucky enough to have friends that I can, uh, I can go to with this kind of thing. Um, and I have, I have gone to therapists in the past with, with, with things though, not currently. I guess what I'm asking here though, is when we choose, like I have a lot of friends and a lot of connections that are, you know, a lot of friends, a lot of acquaintances. I have a fairly widespread community. And when I think about who I would trust to engage me with power, to keep me accountable around power, to, um, to be the people that keep me um, able to be the person that I want to be or closer to the person that I'd like to be in the world, the, the way that I choose which people to engage with around that is very different from how I choose, you know, who to have a conversation with on Facebook. So how do you, when you think about, okay, I'm going to, I need to, this is a thorny issue. I need to call somebody up. I need to talk. How do you, what's your metric? How do you select the person or people who are on your shortlist for that? The, the most important aspect of that relationship is trust, right? So I'm not sure um, that's true, but go ahead. Well, if you don't have that, then 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 the rest of it's gonna, doesn't matter. Um, I'm not. You know, there are other attributes that are important, but to me, the the part of it that I'm not looking for their advice. I'm not looking for them to solve my problem. I'm going to be the one who solves it myself. I've learned that. I go to someone who's going to see the problem I present as something for them to solve, they're not going to be a good person to talk to. I want, you know, I generally want someone who's going to say, you know, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, I I hear you, Uh, that sounds tough, and maybe occasionally, you know, have you thought about this aspect of what you're doing? Mm Mm-hmm. The reason that trust is important is because I want to be able, I want to feel like there's not going to be a lot of consequences for opening up like this. And the things I tell them are not going to get spread around. So, because ultimately, everything's going on in my own head. So it sounds like you want to be able to to be witnessed, to have somebody Uh be present with you in your process. And witness non-judgmentally, even if the things that you think or say in your process are perhaps not um, not your best self. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. That's that 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 really gets to the core of it. Um, and you know, you can find that with a therapist. You can find that with you know various other professionals that you can hire and stuff like that. But um, but. Uh, uh, the, the you know the simple act of listening and you know as you said witnessing and and that that kind of thing I don't think is is the too terribly hard to find if um, if you're the kind of person who also does that for other people right um, is you know being that kind of friend to other people is the way to attract those kinds of friends. And at what point do you think that listener, that witness, has a responsibility to call you in or call you out? (sighs) Um, 
because we're talking about conversations about power. And, you know, I said, yeah, that, uh, I said in my lead in, you know, power corrupts, but it doesn't have to be that way. And that's my, that's my philosophy is that there are ways to be with power that are not inherently morally destructive. Well, I mean, you know, there's, there's the, there's the legend, which may or may not be entirely true, uh, that, you know, the, the, the kings of Europe would have fools who were allowed to say anything and not suffer for it. You know, they were, uh, culturally, um, you know, the king's fool was there to be the vocal present conscience and to mock the king if he was making what the, you know, making, doing something, doing something wrong. And I think that that kind of relationship of <laughs> having a friend who will say, I mean, um, I, you know, I have, I have friends that I pass uh, manuscripts back and forth with. Uh, when we were writing, and we're in very you know kind of alpha reader type things where we're we're looking at what we what we're writing as we go along and making commentary, and I have had places where I've been writing along with something, and one of my friends just pops a comment in that just says, "Oh, honey, no," um, <laughs> which is kind of a you know a kind of a cliche phrase, but it 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 is a combination of you shouldn't be doing this, and I'm telling you because I care about you. It is, oh, honey, you know, a, a, an endearment, a, 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 an expression of closeness, and no, don't do this. <laughs> uh, and I think that just that little phrase can really be, um, uh, uh, when not used sarcastically, uh, can be a very kind of um, uh, uh, an effective way for someone who's emotionally close to uh, uh, let you know that you're you're missing something or you're overextended in some way or what have you. So how do you know, as the listener, how do you know when to go from I'm witnessing non-judgmentally to, oh no, there's a judgment about this? (laughs) (laughs) Um, If the person doesn't, in, in the process of expressing what they're doing, if the person doesn't doesn't hear it, um, you know, and the and the, the step before, oh honey, no, might be, are you listening to yourself right now? <laughs> um, you know, uh, because usually, you know, if you can get someone to kind of reflect back on what they just said, if they've, you know, if they're, if they're expressing this way, this way, and, um, you know, you you can kind of get them to see it without having to point it out real hard. Um, That is if, you know, I mean, if you're dealing with someone who just doesn't have that kind of empathy in the first place, I don't think that's very effective. But um, I mean, again, I'm thinking this is, this is not the kind of relationship I don't expect anybody to be able to have. I'm I'm speaking very specifically about my own experience. And, and oftentimes when people, you know, will tell me that, you know, there's something that they're wrestling with or something like that and having, you know, and I'm on the, res- the receiving end of this kind of, uh, this kind of conversation, um, they'll be going on and then, and then, you know, in the process of talking about it, say, and I know this is, I know that there's, there's something wrong with this, but here's where I am, right? And so if somebody's already acknowledging it, 
then there's no need to stop them and point it out. Uh, but I think it's ultimately it's, it's on the it's on the confessor's side to recognize it and make a change. The judgment side of things, I think, only really needs to come into play when the person who's at the greatest risk of getting hurt is not the person who's talking. Right? Mm-hmm. If have you talked to Sally about this? You know, is is you know where you might go when when somebody's contemplating something that so that that was you know that that's not just something that they're wrestling with, but an injustice of some kind, some something some some kind of harm. Um, and I don't think that I've never had that com- that kind of conversation come up, right? Where I'm you know helping someone work with something and and they're actively like contemplating something that would hurt someone else. Um, and really, you've never talked to someone who's actively contemplating something that could be hurtful. Well, I mean, there's, there's also the whole matter of point of view, right? Because, uh, you know, if, if, a, if a, a friend of mine, uh, uh, is like, for example, you know, contemplating a divorce and is, you know, working through the, what their, what, you know, the troubles in their relationship and saying, you know, I, I think that I just need to split up with this person. Well, I mean, that breakup is going to be, is going to be hurt, is going to cause hurt in the other person, right? But that doesn't, you know, just because it's going to cause hurt doesn't mean it shouldn't happen. You know, because well, so, so here, here we're in yeah, the territory, I, here we're in the territory of morality, right? Because it's not yeah. immoral to do something. It's not necessarily immoral to do something that will cause pain or discomfort, right? And the question is, you know, uh, at what point does does the situation become one where we are at and encountering a moral quandary where the where the person is contemplating doing something that's excuse me actually morally reprehensible and when we get to morally reprehensible in some way when we get to or even morally questionable then you know for example let's stay in the realm of relationships but shift it slightly this person that you're talking to instead of um, contemplating a divorce perhaps they're contemplating an affair and they don't have an open relationship they don't have an open relationship agreement so it's in violation of their covenant with their partner yeah. Right. Now, um, now we're in moral territory. Is it, you know, maybe mm-hmm. their partner has decided they don't want to have sex and hasn't wanted to have sex for a long time and they really want to have sex and they really feel like they need it. And they're, you know, I mean, there are people can rationalize, especially intensives <laughs> can rationalize <laughs> absolutely anything if you give us five minutes and a scrap of paper. And so <laughs> the, the question is when we're in community and especially when intensives are in community with other intensives, because we all, you know, almost all of us get really interested in this kind of theoretical moral space where you can, where you can just wrestle with the idea and is this right or is this wrong? And when do you get to bend the rules and how far can I bend the rules? And, and, and it becomes an exercise in fun, right? We like to play with it. We like to be like, <laughs> well, so uh-huh. if I did uh-huh. this, it's not technically against 
the rules, right? And that's how we get ourselves into a lot of wonderful things. And it's how we get ourselves into an enormous amount of trouble. So when we're in community with each other, I believe we have a certain amount of responsibility to call each other back to things like grace and kindness and and moral and and a moral structure and and it's trickier if you don't share that moral structure with the other person because then you have to choose yeah. whether you're going to step into their moral structure or invite them into your moral structure or whether you think that you can find a sort of compromised moral structure and who does that serve but but I I do believe that that there is some responsibility in human community really anywhere. We've been talking mostly about a one-on-one conversation, but anytime we're in human community, I, I do believe that there, there are thresholds, that we have a responsibility when we cross that threshold, when we're in the realm of doing damage, that we have a responsibility to, A, invite the person to face the, the, the magnitude of damage that they're going to cause, and B, invite them to engage the question of whether it's moral to cause that much damage. It might be, right? There might not be a better solution. And, you know, we humans live in the world of paradox, but, but to, but to try to maintain moral neutrality in times of clear moral crisis. Well, I think there are a lot of historical moments that will show us what happens when you do that. Well, I, I, I mean, this this goes to situations where instead of speaking one on one, instead of speaking in a very um, uh, a, a situation where where um, the trust level is really high, um, I, I've I found that one of the things that I like to say in a, in a kind of an if there's like a a group of people, um, where I, someone has so, said something that comes across to me as being terrible. Uh, you know, something that would it would would provoke fear in a marginalized community, or would um, you know would, would 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 you know says something that needs to be called out. Um, there's a kind of a, a construction that I have put together to use in those situations where I will say, "What you just said seems to imply this, that, and the other." But you strike me as a moral, upstanding person who cares about the lives of other people. So that can't be the right interpretation of what you said. Can you clarify? And um, that has occasionally gotten uh, very bad reactions where someone will say, no, I absolutely mean to step on that child's head. Figuratively speaking, well, thank but you so much for being clear about who you are. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and now I know where our relationship stands. Or um, get them to kind of rethink what they've said in the guise of restating it, right? Uh, and 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 it's kind of a with dealing with certain people. Um, sometimes it can be very useful to get people to reanalyze the way they're thinking if you give them a way to save face. And to not have to say, "Oh, I was wrong," um, uh, uh, because if you can get them to to say, "Okay, let me say, let me rephrase what I was saying," and then behind it, they're changing their mind, but they don't have to actually say so. 
and that pretend that that was the way they thought all along um, is a, is a, can be persuasive. Right. I mean, and, it doesn't and work now, every you're, time, but, now you're talking more about a public forum. Yeah. This is, this is in more public situations where there's more than just, more than just a couple of people. But see, here's, here's what I'm interested in. If you have, and maybe not one-on-one, -on -one, maybe six people in a group, you know, but when you have a small group of people where the trust level is fairly high, or at least where you know each other fairly well, and you're having one of these conversations, you know, I think those are not times to maintain moral neutrality either. Those are the times, that's the space where you can say, oh, honey, no. Yeah. No, yeah. That, I mean, that, that's, that, I mean, it, it, it's different tools for different situations, right? And oh, honey, no is, is, is definitely the, that, that kind of, that kind of, that kind of tool. Yeah. So what is our responsibility as people with power? Because I don't think I've got anyone lined up for this podcast at this point who has no power. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah. what is our responsibility as people with power? In your case, you have a public voice, you have a public audience, you're writing, you're writing for an audience, right? So the stuff that you write, yeah. um, you know, it, obviously you were talking about how it, it centralizes consent. And I think that's really important. Um, mm -hmm. you know, but what is our responsibility as people with power, as we think about who we engage with and how we engage with them? Um, and especially who we put in that small circle around us, our first and second ring consultants, if you will. Um, what is our responsibility in terms of being part of those communities and forming those communities around us so that we are not corrupted by the power we hold? I think one of the things that has helped me in that regard is that by in being a writer, I'm often my, putting myself in other people's heads. You know, how would this kind of person react to this kind of situation? And that can be a very difficult um, prospect for someone who doesn't have a lot of experience with the lives of other people. So I, uh, for example, uh, in my, re my own reading, um, I try to limit the amount of stuff that I read that is written by straight white cis men. Mm -hmm. um, uh, at the very most, half of what I read is, uh, is by straight white cis men. Um, and uh, I try to make it even less than that. Um, so I... I feel like by reading things that are written from points of view of other people, I can, I can learn more about what, uh, uh, what the, what their experiences are like and be able to imagine better, uh, how they would react to things in my own writing. Um, I don't claim to be an expert at this, but I think my writing is improved by by diversifying the the stories that I take in for myself, uh, uh, and um, uh, and do you also you know, diversify the communities you interact with? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, that's a little more difficult because, um. My presence in a community will change the community. 
Sure. Um, if I, you know, if there's a, if I'm at like a convention or something and there's a group of women over in the corner talking and I go over and join the conversation, the energy immediately changes. Of course. So, uh, and that's true of online communities and, and all sorts of things like that. Um, there's several Facebook groups that I'm in where all I do is just sit and watch. I don't, I don't engage with anybody because I want to see how they interact with each other uh, uh, authentically without my, without, without my, like, almost like uh, Heisenberg observer effect, without my participation changing what's going on. So to some extent, that's a little like reading because these are these stories going on that I am kind of passively accepting. So I don't really trust too much communities that I'm participating in being able to teach me too much about about diverse voices. Um, so uh, uh, that's not to say that I don't participate in those communities. I just don't expect that that's going to teach me as much as being able to see and receive those stories uh, without trying to without trying to participate, without trying to prompt, without trying to uh, you know ask too many questions. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I do think, though, that the, there's another level, which is which is um, which is authentic relationship. Yeah, I mean, and if, I, and that's kind of an, another another kind of another level yet of that that kind of thing. Um, So, you know, but I don't want to be the guy who says, oh, yeah, I've got a lot of, of uh, <laughs> some friends, of my best who are friends people are... of color and women. So, right. yeah, some of my best friends are black. And it's like, uh, that's not to say that there isn't value in that. But, um, you know, it, it, that's, that's always like kind of like the first thing people think of. And, I mean, I've, I've talked to, you know, I've talked to a couple of my person of color, you know, my friends who are people, POCs. And, um and they're like, yeah, I, I interact with my white friends entirely different than anybody else. You know, it's, it, and, and so, um, you know, uh, I mean, for example, I, I um, recently had a story submitted to my podcast. I'm a, a paying market. Um, somebody submitted a story and I'm like, um, this is set. This is an interracial relationship set in the antebellum South. Mm-hmm. It looks to me like, You've handled this really thorny situation well, but I'm a white dude. I can't tell. So I hired a sensitivity reader for that story. Sure. Um, and, and in fact, I'm paying them more than I'm paying the author. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, uh, so uh, I haven't got the report back on that story yet. Um, so I recognize that my ability to to empathize with those kind of situations um, is limited. I, I don't have all the answers personally. So, um, you know, sometimes getting those answers involves, you know, hiring somebody. Sure. Absolutely. So, so when you think about the words, when you think, if I said, how does your community think about this? Or how do you, who, who, who would you think of if I said your community? My community, mm-hmm. 
there's uh, the, the publisher that I have preferred to work with over the past 15 years has been a place called Circlet Press, uh-huh. founded by Cecilia Tan way back when. Um, uh, pub- they, pub- they were the publisher for Monster Whisperer, and uh, every year they hold a retreat. They held a retreat up at uh, up in Boston for all the authors and editors to get together and exchange ideas and uh, um, uh, uh, just you know socialize and and have some fun and and just you know to build a community around the publisher. Um, it was a very participatory kind of thing. Um, uh, a lot of author publisher relationships are very singular. The author only t- speaks to an editor or a few people at the publisher. And never to like other authors at the same publisher. Circular Press was definitely not made that way. They they definitely encouraged a community of all of the people who worked together on this. Um, and to this day, you know, the people that I met through that larger kind of engineered community have been a, a strong um, a strong community for me personally to interact with the other authors and editors that I worked with there. Um, that's been, as far as writing is concerned and, you know, that kind of thing, that's been, uh, 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 that's been a strong part of that. Um, also in the podcasting world, I've made a lot of relationships with other podcasters who do similar things or completely different or what have you, um, uh, around a science fiction convention in Baltimore called Balticon, which has a strong podcasting track, um, and especially podcast fiction. Which is, you know, when you th- people think of a podcast, they don't usually think of podcast fiction. It's kind of a, it's becoming kind of a, uh, its own special thing. And um, uh, so, you know, in that circle, I also have, you know, kind of built my own circle of friends in that regard. Um, so th- those have been my sources over the past 15 years or so. Did I drift and, away from the question? <laughs> <laughs> well, what I asked you is, what is your community? And you talked about your writing community and your podcast community, your, sort of your professional yeah. spaces. Right. Um, and yeah. do you think of your professional spaces as your primary places to have community? Anybody that I can't currently count as a friend, I met either through podcasting or through Circle Press. So, yes. I mean, for you. Yeah. Now, and, and the thing is, though, you know, I have a day job, right? That's my other profession. I don't talk about it a whole lot. It's pretty boring compared to everything else. Um, and I count the people I work with directly there as, you know, moderately close friends. They're not, um, they're not, uh, they're not people I would talk to about really, you know, heavy things. Um, except as it relates to actually doing my job, right? Like, you know, if my kid is sick and I'm, you know, and I can't go into work that day, you know, having a sick kid is a, is a heavy thing, but you know, all I'm going to get there is sympathy. Nobody's going to ask to, if they need to uh, come over with a bowl of soup. Um, when you say professional, um, you know, there are different kinds of professional communities, right? Um, uh, there's, and especially when it comes to things like writing, um, we're not really in competition with each other at all. 
You know, our, our individual successes and failures don't have very much influence on each other. Um, there's a certain amount of, of, uh, of, um, you know, ability to, uh, uh, recommend each other's work to our audiences and things like that. But, um, for the most part, you know, if you get a, you know, if I'm just thinking about, you know, the people sitting around my table at, and from sitting in a, I'm sitting in the bar at Balticon and I've got my friends around me. You know, there's the guy who writes, um, uh, horror and the, 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 the guy who writes mystery and the guy who writes thrillers. And, uh, and when I say guy, it could be any gender. Um, you know, the author who writes, uh, uh, romances and the, uh, uh you know, and, and we are all together in this podcast fiction world. But we all have our own separate audiences, and um, we kind of all succeed and fail on our own. Uh, so that means that because we're all succeeding and failing on our own, it means that we can be more honest and open up to each other about the difficulties and successes that we're having, right? Um, if you if you have you know if you have a bunch of uh, 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 science fiction authors together, and they all write this. They all write like military SF, or 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 whatever. You know, if somebody says, "Hey, I just won this award," it there's going to be a you know just just by natural human feelings, there's going to be a certain amount of uh, a certain amount of 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 black in the emotion that goes along with it. There's going to be a certain amount of envy. There's going to be a certain amount of uh, 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 a certain amount of jealousy, a certain amount of, of bad feeling associated. With yeah. It. I would but steer away from using a bunch of, as a metaphor for that, but, <clears throat> but I mean, and now you're, and now you're in the, in the territory of compersion, right? Are we able to have compersion and compersion is obviously a word that comes out of polyamory. It comes out of the idea. I'm just, you know, gonna gonna give a brief definition here. Compersion is is the ability to basically have joy for somebody else's joy or enjoy somebody else's pleasure. You know, if somebody that you care about is having yeah. a good experience, that you want to have that experience too. So, so, um, so I think that that you know, if if you're sitting around a table of authors and one person won an award that you all went for. Then there's like, oh, I wish I had won that award, but the one hopes that in a strong community, the overarching feeling is one of compersion. That it's like, oh, yay, you won an award! Congratulations, you did a really great job. Oh yeah, and, uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not saying that that I'm not saying that that's impossible. What I'm saying is that compersion is more difficult in a situation where there's a great deal of commonality between the the people, where where. Um, uh, uh, I mean, to, to go into polyamory, for example, you know, imagine that you've got a couple who have decided that they're going to open up their relationship. Tracy and Joe. The first person that Joe goes and creates a new relationship with outside of Tracy and Joe looks an awful lot like Tracy and acts an awful lot like Tracy. Tracy is going to feel going to have a harder time with compersion than if they're completely different. Maybe. Or, very, or might. Maybe. <laughs> uh, what I'm saying is that there are feelings that can get in the way when there's a lot of commonality in the community. That if there's a lot of diversity in the community, not as, not as much 
or when at least that's that's what I what my experience has been uh-huh. is is that is that if I'm in a community with a bunch of just plain authors, we can really share what's going on very easily without having to worry about competition starting to be an issue. But the narrower you make it, where the you know the group of people you're talking to are all very similar, um, I don't I think trust becomes harder and harder. Uh, that's but that's my that's been my experience. I don't know. It's, it's that's really interesting because to me it's easier to trust people whose experience is close enough to mine that I that I can um, believe that they understand my experience. Huh. Eh, okay. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I mean, can, we I can look at definitely the, see that. I th- look. Look. At I guess. I guess I'm speaking. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I, I see what you're saying in in, in terms of in terms of identity. I'm talking more in terms of uh, of of activity of what you're doing rather than who you are. But I think that's a, I, a whole I, other I'm rabbit hole. To accept the idea that I'm wrong. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. I, I think there's a whole other rabbit hole there of how how do our identities interact with our behaviors, right? At what point does I write become I am an author, but yeah, uh, but you know. Oh yeah, that's, that's, that's another whole hour of that. Right, exactly. Yeah. I want to circle back before we end. I want to circle back to one thing you said a little bit earlier. You said you know there there are different kinds of professional spaces, and you were referencing in that case your experiences with organizations like Circuit Press and your experience at your day job that you don't talk about very much and where you have this sort of more distant relationship with your with your colleagues there. And yeah. what I'm interested in there is is in what ways telling ourselves that there's a difference lets us off the hook about holding each other accountable in spaces where it might be uncomfortable or risky. Um, do you know where I'm going with that? I'm not. I yeah, and I'm trying to think of of like if somebody in my podcasting community, or somebody in my circular press community, or somebody in my day job, said something really, like, really racist. Uh huh. Which I can't imagine happening in any three of them, but let's say let's just posit that somebody says something like that. Or maybe Would they I said something really subtly sexist, which I can totally imagine yeah. happening. Yeah. Um, well. Uh, okay. If somebody said something so, something really sexist in one of those situations. Um, okay. Uh, let me give. Uh, this is this is something historical. Um, in the podcasting community that I was part of, somebody had an affair, was cheating on their spouse several years back. And um, it was one of those things where, since it was happening at the con, pretty much everybody knew about it. Um, and it was, you know, there was a discussion kind of going around. It's like, all right, do we tell their spouse about this or is it our business? And Did anyone a lot of talk to the person? Um, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it was, it was also like, you know, like 
hey, dude, we want we don't want to see that here. You know, that that kind of thing was. I'm. I was not particularly close to that person myself, but I was in discussions about what people were talking about doing. Um, and eventually, someone someone did go to him and say, you know, look, dude, you know, your 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 business with your with your wife and your and your you know your spouse and your 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 uh, affair is your business, but don't. I mean. You in by doing it here in a really kind of open way, you are involving us in it, um, and we don't want to have to be. We don't like being in the situation of knowing about this and uh, having to figure out what we're going to do. That was the ultimate thing that the kind of the, the way that it was presented to them. Um. And uh, I think at my day job, first of all, it'd be unlikely to anybody anybody ever found out. Um, but even if they did, I don't think that anybody would say anything. Um, I think it would be much more of a "this is nobody's business but theirs" situation. Um, and in my author, in my circle press community, I think people would probably be like, well, we don't know if they have an open relationship, so let's just not worry about it. Um, so but in I, no case did anybody, in none of those communities, it sounds like, would you expect anybody to sit down with the person who's doing the thing himself and not say you're making us uncomfortable by involving us in a situation that we don't think should be ours to be involved in, but say, listen, is this the kind of person you want to be? Yeah, I don't think, yeah, I don't think any of those communities, I don't think that that kind of conversation would be impossible, but I don't think it's likely, I don't think any of them would, would really come across in a kind of a, I've never been in a situation where someone in one of the close communities that I'm part of has done or said something that was that crossed the line into this is just plain wrong. There's no justification for it. You know, uh, uh, and the community has has you know called them out on it. It's happened in kind of in like the broader senses, like the recent um, the recent stuff with uh, J.K. Rowling and trans people. Right. Um, you know, I don't have a personal relationship with J.K. Rowling, but you know, I agree with the people who've been like, "Oh man, this is that's really not cool. That's really not cool." Um, and and I'm trying to, you know, if somebody like in in one of my closer circles were to do or say something like that, I you know, I would definitely feel like, "Hey, that was just plain wrong," and I can't I can't sit still for that. Um, but I, but it's also never happened, and I'm not sure if that's just a matter of me being ignorant of it, or you know, of people like who are in that 
in the community, and I, I don't discount the possibility that that is, or it's just that you know I've got good friends. <laughs> I mean, I, um, who just I, don't I, feel that way, right? I, I mean, and to, to some extent, I mean, at any community the, has the, a set of moral standards that's going to, um, at some point, there's a threshold, right? Excuse me, you're planning to murder someone in cold blood. That's really unacceptable. <laughs> you have to not. Yeah. But but what I'm interested in. Because this is a this a con- these conversations this podcast this what I'm interested in is the conversations about the slightly more liminal spaces. You know, f- folks who yeah. have followed me in any context know that liminality is is one of my big things, and that I spend a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of a lot of thought on what it means to be liminal. Because so much of my identity and my experience in my life are about living kind of. Understanding that the borderland is not a line, the borderland is a space. That there's a place yeah, here a, that is between. Right. And mm-hmm. and so what I'm interested in is, I mean, when it's clearly wrong, when the person is standing there with a gun to somebody's head and is like, "I'm going to murder this person in cold <laughs> blood for no reason," right? We don't have a problem usually being like, "Um, actually, don't." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With like this is yeah. not really going to work for us. You're going to have to come up with a better solution, right? And and when it's clearly morally right, you know, when someone's like, "Look at this starving baby. I'm going to put food in its mouth." <laughs> Nobody's in our yeah. circles anyway. Yeah. Nobody is going to be like, "Oh, that's yeah. a terrible idea," right? So so what we're looking at is the liminal space of you know this person appears to be having an affair. What is our community? response is our community response to say oh well you know it's not my business la 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 is our community response to to confront it but in this indirect way or is our community response to actually engage our moral responsibility as a community around this person and to say to the person hey let's have a conversation like it might be that you have an open relationship but if you do we as your community would like to know that that's okay so that so that we can continue to act as a community in health around this because right now we're becoming a community in dis-ease around this and so one person going and saying listen your community needs to know what's going on or going to the person and saying listen this is what it looks like is this if that's the case is this the person you want to be because asking people not just are you crossing some egregious moral line, but asking people, is this the person you want to be? Is really, I think, where the make or break line, you know, we, we tend to say the make or break line of, of corruption and power and, uh, you know, immorality is way out at the edges with the gun and the person's, you know, like, and it's not. I think, I think the, the, the place where our collective morality cracks is actually much closer in and much more liminal. There, there, I mean, there's a... That's where things get complicated, right? That's where things get... And one could say one, where things get interesting. And, you know, I, I, I tend to try to look for those spaces in my writing to say... You know, how can this how can this situation be more complicated? Because it's more complicated is generally speaking more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, the human human drama becomes more interesting when the questions are thorny, 
you know, when you're not sure exactly where the line is. Um, uh, uh, and um, you know, I, I, I don't want to get into tooting my own horn, but there's stuff like that going on in, in my novels. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but there's a difference between <laughs> experiencing that stuff through a story and living in it, uh, where, you know, being in that situation is, is, is really uncomfortable to live in real life. Um, and so, you know, people have a natural inclination, I think, to avoid those, those things. If there's a way to say this, this, I mean, <clears throat> this, this, there's a, there's also like there's a, there's a liminality of morality, right? There's a liminality of, of is this is this a, is this wrong, or is this just uncomfortable, or what? You know, in this in this spectrum of, of between feeding babies and shooting people in the street, uh, and, but there's also like the 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 the, the, the Spectrum between this is absolutely my business to handle, and I really shouldn't get involved. Um, and it has to do with, and there's all kinds of considerations between that. There's all kinds of reasons why someone might justifiably say I should not get involved in this, right? If if the price to themselves would be tremendously higher than the benefit to anybody else of getting involved, then, you know, you can make an argument that they should not get involved. You know, to the, at the very least, you know, getting involved with one thing means you can't get involved with something else. So there's, there's, there's that whole question too, and how deeply to get involved. Um, And it's really difficult to speak in, generalities in this regard because people have to navigate in individual situations especially in these liminal spaces can be so complicated that you know it's hard to it's hard to put a rule it's hard to draw a line that says at this point you should make a judgment and tell the person that you've made a judgment right you can't just now it may be that that as a culture we should be making these judgments more. It's it's it, that that's that's definitely a thing, right? And and I kind of hear you saying that 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 we should be more willing to sit down with someone and saying, you know, I'm, I'm I think what you're doing is wrong. Maybe saying it in a less less confrontational way. Well, and I um, I think part of where I'm going is as individuals with power. It is our responsibility to invite people to do that, right? Because you're right. There's a cultural um, resistance to doing that in this culture. Some cultures are different, but um, but in mm-hmm. sort of mainstream United States culture right now, there's a resistance to that. And and so in order to have the kind of moral accountability that makes it um, possible, ethical, safer in the same way that sex can't be fully safe. I don't necessarily know the power can be fully safe. Um, But the way to be safer power holders, my argument is that the way to be safer power holders is to have 
communities of accountability around us. And the way to have a community of accountability and a culture of non-involvement is to invite it. And so it changes the relationship and the question and the conversation entirely. If I have had a conversation with you and I have said to you, listen, you're somebody who's important to me. You're somebody who's tr- who I trust. You're somebody who I value. And if you think I'm out of line, I need you to tell me because I'm out on these skinny branches doing this stuff, right? I'm, you know, a lot of the people I talk to these days are founders of companies, right? I'm out on the skinny mm-hmm. branches doing this stuff, right? I'm, I'm out here where I have to blow off a certain amount of naysaying <laughs> because if I don't, I'm never going to do something revolutionary and I'm interested in doing right. something revolutionary, mm-hmm. but you understand the difference between doing something revolutionary and doing something morally reprehensible. And I need you to help me stay on the right side of that line. Mm-hmm. And if I have an agreement with you about that and not just you, but a circle of people that makes it possible for me to cantilever for myself out further than I could otherwise without breaking the branch off and hitting the ground. Yeah. And and I think it's it's um, I think it's uh, 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 useful to look at it from a community point of view, where if if one person in the community says, "Well, I got to say something," and they you know walk over to to the person and say, "Is this really what you want to be?" That's I think less effective than if three people walk over and say. Tracy, come here, sit down. <laughs> We're worried about you. Um, and the person you're becoming or what's going on in this situation. Right. I mean, the structure of how you approach someone also depends on the person, depends on the relative power, right? We're right back to power. Yeah. Somebody in who yeah. has a lot of community power, somebody who, who has a lot of influence and sway is probably going to be less likely to be approached by one person, more likely to be approached by three people because there's going to be this this intuitive sense of balancing out the amount of power in the room, right? But, but, but that's where I'm going with this, right? Is this idea that not that, that this – I don't believe that we're in a place culturally where this is going to spontaneously arise. I think we're in a place culturally where – as the leaders, we have to take responsibility for forming those communities around ourselves. Speaking, speaking as, I don't consider myself to be, uh, well, okay, maybe I'm wrong. I need to look at this. I need, I haven't, this is not something I've actually th- thought about. Am I a leader in any of the communities that I participate in? You know, thinking about my Balticon friends, am I a leader in that community? I don't know. I've never actually talked to any of them about whether they consider me a leader. Are you a power builder, though? Yeah, to some extent. Um, I, 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 I'm on the, I'm on the uh, staff convention, and I schedule some of the events that happen there. So that is that is institutional power. In mm-hmm. that community, that not everybody in my community has. So, so, but, but at the same time, 
it's also like this goes back to like you know where is the where, where's the overlap between power and service right um that's another whole hour <laughs> right it's another whole hour uh, uh that i mean that, and that goes back all into to 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 bdsm and all kinds of other things but um you know i have always looked at that participation and that thing of okay i'm going to think up nine hours of stuff to do at the convention uh, that people will find interesting. I've always thought of it as a, as a service that I provide to the community, but it's pretty clearly also power. And I, I think now that you've kind of brought that up, it does make me a leader because I, I am making decisions about what is going to be available for people to experience at the convention. So, um, that's something I think I need to just go back and think about more <laughs> because it's not something I've, I've, you know, I would, if you had asked me 15 minutes ago, whether I was a leader in that community, I would have said no. And now I kind of have to realize that I, it, it, the answer has to be yes. So Isn't this interesting. Um, uh, so, so, so then that comes around to what is my responsibility with that power? And right. um, you know, one of the things that I have done you know, with that power is to make sure that um, uh, underrepresented people are well represented at the presentations that I organize. Mm -hmm. You know, to invite people onto panels uh, who are, uh, 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 you know, diverse people, not just the same old people every time. Um, and, uh, and uh, you, know, you know, consciously, making sure that that is uh, handled appropriately. Um, so it's an interesting so, thing, right? Yeah. I mean, when I asked you earlier, how do you know that you have power? You gave me some, some interesting answers, but this is why I think those questions are, are important because, and I'm confronting a lot of this in my own life right now in a variety of different ways, that once you realize that you have power that you didn't realize you had, then you immediately yeah. have to start thinking about, well, what's my responsibility with this power? How do I use this power well? How do I make sure that this power doesn't corrupt me? All those questions come up. And so many of us have been taught to believe that we don't have power, that we're not in leadership. But when we take a solid look at the place we hold in society, at the things that we do in public, um, whether or not we make money with them, because money is understood to be a, a corollary, correlate for power a lot. You know, when we when we start to look at where we hold power and when we enter an analysis with the assumption that we must have power in here somewhere and look for the power rather than entering with the assumption that we must not have power in here somewhere, that power belongs to other people, it's over there, it's up there, whatever, then I think we end up in a much more robust conversation. But we also end up with understanding that, that with that power, whatever it is, comes our ability to change things, to change the world, which is, mm -hmm. of course, where we started. So we yeah. need to wrap up because um, yeah. because this is fascinating and could go on forever. Yes. Are the, do you have well, any last words? Do you have any, anything that you would like to leave our listeners with? I think that the, the, the point that I kind of came to this wanting to emphasize was that 
power complicates consent. And we never really got too deep into that. And uh, 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 so uh, it's, yeah, just <laughs> power complicates consent. And that, that when in situations where there's a power imbalance that people need to be very uh, cognizant of, of, of how they might be coercing consent without knowing it. Right, which comes back to what we were just talking about. Because if you don't know you have power, you might not be aware that you're coercing consent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And where can they find you online? Uh, the big thing with me these days is my podcast. Um, you can find Nobilis Erotica at nobilis.libsyn.com, N-O-B-I-L-I-S dot L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Um, and, uh, that's, that's pretty much my hub these days. Um, you can, if you look up my name in any, you know, ebook, uh, retailer, you'll find all kinds of stuff I've written. Um, so that's, that's, that's the best place for me right now. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a fascinating conversation. I'm going to have all kinds of fun in post trying to edit it down to an hour. And uh, <laughs> I am so sorry for that. I know I, I'm being a podcaster myself. I know how much of a pain that can be. I am not in the least bit sorry. Speaking of consent and power, I could have cut us off 30 <laughs> minutes ago. Um, and, and I think these conversations are really important and I'm glad to have them. So I really appreciate you coming on and, um, and I look forward to following you in the future. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. And that is the end of our podcast. Today we were speaking with Nobilis Reed, who writes erotica and has written books about monsters and tentacles and consent and power. <laughs> and uh, I suggest you check out his work if that's the sort of thing you're into. Um, if it is not, please allow yourself to, to be excused. And, um, and we look forward to seeing you again on this podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Power Pivot. We'd love to hear from you. Please rate and subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support Power Pivot and get early access to new episodes, go to intensivesinstitute.com slash Patreon. For information about coaching and consulting, or to book Leela for a talk or workshop, go to intensivesinstitute.com.